Okay, let's turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans 11. Drop my announcement. The ladies' bus trip to see Jonah has only 20 seats left. So keep that in mind. Also keep it in prayer because this is going to be a a blessed endeavor and pray for everything to be fulfilled that needs to be fulfilled. Safe trip both ways. Ministry to other churches, and anything else you can think of to pray for. Tony wants to know if the 20 seats aren't filled, can he go? But okay. I'll have to ask. I'll ask the powers that be. Also, there's a joint, speaking of other churches, there's a joint community church picnic this Sunday, August 20th. Memorial Park, 1500 Stevenson Boulevard. I'm taking it that that is New Kensington, Pastor Brown? Pastor Dollar Bill? Are you, do you agree? Okay, you agree. And I urge uh, anyone that wants to come to this because I think it's a good opportunity for fellowship with other assemblies in the area. And that would be within God's pleasure and God's good intention and God's will for sure. And as I've been saying, we don't get admitted to many things. So consider that this Sunday, it's all the way from one thirty till seven fellowship should draw some food should draw more and fun and children are welcome. So some of you will be rethinking that then. Get away from me, you bother me. W.C. Fields. We have a couple W.C. Fields. and Incidentally, one of his most famous lines was he was caught reading the Bible. And they said, we never figured you as a man that would read the Bible. And he said, looking for loopholes. Well, there aren't any. They're gonna, he's going to get you with, God's, with his grace. Can't run from grace, not even W.C. Fields, not even Mae West. It's how how far back I go. Romans chapter 11 is our current focus. It's one of the chapters that has the most important value in terms of our study, which is in its 91st installment now, Better Call Paul, because it lends a lot of momentum and a whole new dimension to the vision of Jesus Christ in his universally saving and redeeming significance. And I think God is giving us a mouth and wisdom that none of our adversaries will be able to say anything against. You can say all you want against doctrines like universal salvation, but you cannot resist the universally saving significance of the man Christ Jesus and of the triune God. This is an irresistible truth because God is already set out and is in the midst of an irresistible invasion of grace into the human race and into all creation. Now, since I beat you up a little bit on Sunday, got you to hate the present age, I think we're ready for some new ground tonight, tomorrow night, and maybe Sunday. Sunday's something's already working on me about that day. Tonight, God has not rejected his people. A few moments of silent preparation. Father, for this privilege, we're grateful. We understand your mandate to redeem the time for the days are evil. And we thank you for this opportunity. We pray that you'll use this message as you use all messages 
to call into being things that did not exist before and to call into your new creation people who have not been there before. Bring about a new creation for they are created now. Isaiah 48, 7. So bless our attentiveness tonight and sanctify it by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Incidentally, tomorrow night, I have asked Dave Wilt back there. You ready tomorrow night? To do a 15-minute introduction tomorrow night. So he's going to cram everything he knows into 15 minutes. And how, how is, what's that? 12. Okay, you can go 12. That's good. I'll be ready for whatever. So keep that in mind. Keep, that, keep him in prayer. That'll be part two, incidentally, of his. Some of you in the old, in the overflow rooms have probably heard much of his wisdom already, but this will give him a wider audience. In Romans chapter 10, as we've seen, Isaiah speaks for Yahweh, the God of Israel, about the Gentiles first. Referring to Isaiah 65 and verse 1. Romans 10.20, but Isaiah comes out boldly. I'm I'm using my own translation here from the original Greek. But Isaiah comes out boldly and speaking for Yahweh says, I was found by those who were not seeking me. I revealed myself, and that's the word emphanes. It's an apocalyptic expression. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. Those are the pagan nations. Then Romans 10.21, Paul also quotes Isaiah, speaking for Yahweh, from Isaiah 65.2, about Israel. So we have Gentiles and Jews here. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient, the Greek word here is significant for our study tonight, to a disobedient, and that word in the Greek is A-P-E-I-T-H-O-U-N-T-A, apaithunta, apaithunta, and it comes from the word not to believe, apaitho, not to believe, unbelieving, disbelieving. It also means disobedient with the implication of infidelity and unfaithfulness. And so it cries out for some kind of vengeance, some kind of punishment on such a people, but that doesn't seem to be forthcoming. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient, apaithunta, and defiant people. Now, in Romans 10.21 and in the Septuagint translation or the Greek translation of Isaiah 65.2, this word is used. It's the present active participle of the simpler form of the verb, and that's a, which is a negation, a pytho or a pytho, and In that verb, the participle acts as a descriptive adjective. So he's talking about disobedient and disbelieving, describing his people with the implication of unfaithfulness. Now, this is a very crucial understanding to have because especially given the entire purpose of God's mission through Paul, God's mission through Paul, which is to bring about the obedience not disobedience, but to bring about the obedience of faith or faithfulness in Romans 1.5. His apostolic mission, the grace that he received, which was his apostleship, was toward bringing about the obedience of faith, which can also be translated, as the CSB note does, the obedience that is faith, Or it can be the faithful obedience, 
or it can be the faithfulness or the obedience that comes from faith. So Paul said, I received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith. And I think we can see that as the obedience of faithfulness, the obedience of faithfulness, which is Christ's own obedience and fidelity in people, participated in by people, in all the nations. We could even say by all the nations. Obedience of faithfulness or participation in Messiah's faithfulness brought about in all the nations. It's also translated as among the nations. You can look that up for yourself, and we may take a glance at it later. Romans 1.5. And so this passage reaches all the way back to the beginning of Romans, it reaches all the way forward to the end of Romans also. So this is a critical thing. I plan to get much more in detail in Romans 11 if I ever do a Romans study, and that'll be the entire verse-by-verse study of Romans, which I'm more and more inclined to think I may be doing down the road a little bit. So indeed, Romans 1.5 and Romans 15:14 to 18 the last verse in the body of the epistle is Romans 15:13 after Paul explicitly states that the gentiles and the Jews universally will be singing the praises of God together as one people with one voice he then talks about them enjoying the peace and the joy It comes from believing. And then, after that, he says in verse 14, and I've translated this passage also, Romans 15, 14 through 18, he says, Now, my siblings, I myself am convinced about you that you're full of beneficence, filled with knowledge, and able to admonish one another. In other words, They can encourage one another. They're filled with the will that others would experience God's love. They are filled with knowledge. They're filled with biblical knowledge. They're able to counsel, advise, build up, and encourage others. But Paul said, but you also need this epistle, in which I have spoken quite audaciously, somewhat boldly, with, we could say, bold font, written with bold font about certain things so that you won't forget them. This is pastoral exhortation. It's necessary. We could, there, there's a big movement today that wants to eject the office of pastor-teacher, just like back then people hated Paul's office. And so he said, I'm, I'm convinced about you that you're full of beneficence or goodness, generosity, filled with knowledge and able to admonish one another. 15, nevertheless, I have written to you rather boldly on some points. One of those points is in Romans 11, not to be arrogant about your election as if it's an exclusive thing, not to be arrogant about your election and therefore be elitist and boast against Israel, for example, who for the time being only and on a temporary scale has a hardness of heart. He will say later on in Romans 11, you may say branches were broken off, Gentile Christians. You may say branches were broken off that I might be included. And Paul then goes on to say, but how do you know whether God will graft those broken off branches back on, which is entirely his plan to save all of Israel. So with Paul's exhortation, I'm repeating the same exhortation. Beware of elitist arrogance. Beware of elective exclusivist arrogance and so Paul said I wrote very boldly about this on some points by way of reminding you of them again in other places he said lest you forget in Philippians 3 1 I repeat and it's not grievous for me to repeat because for you it's safe for you it means stability same in Hebrews thirteen twenty two. the pastoral writer of that epistle closes by saying 
permit or allow the word of exhortation. Within this passage, like Romans, like Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, there was strong exhortation, strong warning, strong admonition. That Sunday morning's message fit into that kind of thinking where people are reprimanded for loving the present evil age. And that's a problem. It's a, it's a strong problem. And you might not want to get the message, but it's available. You might want to get it in double speed to get it over with. But he said, I hope you'll permit, I hope you'll allow the word of exhortation, the strong word of exhortation. It's not a pleasure for pastors to do that, incidentally. It's not a pleasure to do it. If it is a pleasure to do it, then you'd have to check your motives. Second Peter 1, 12 to 15, Peter also says, or the author of that epistle says, speaking for Peter, I will keep on repeating in order to remind you as long as I'm in this tent, this mortal body, so that after I shuck this tent you'll be able to be remembering these things. You'll still hear the echo of my voice, as it were. So Paul then speaks of the grace that was given to him. Notice that in verse 15. Nevertheless, I've spoken to you rather boldly on some points by way of reminding you of them again. Through the grace that was given to me. This goes all the way back to 1.5. The grace that was given to Paul was his apostolic office and function by which he led the charge, humanly speaking, of God's invasion of irresistible grace into the pagan nations. The grace that was given to me in verse 16 to be an accountable minister. A liturgos here means a minister, a public minister who has accountability and authority. He has not only authority, but he has accountability. Those who think they have authority but have no accountability also have a problem. Pastors have authority. Apostles have authority. Prophets have authority. But they have accountability equally to God and to the people to whom they preach and teach. It's an accountability. And so through the grace that was given to me to be an accountable minister of Christ Jesus to the nations, we could say Gentiles, we can say ethne, we can say heathen, which is an old worn out term and not really relevant. We could say pagans, which is more close to it, closer to it, because the very fact that these people were pagans and graced out by God emphasizes God's irresistible grace. So in Romans 15 16, he goes on to say, the grace that was given to me to be an accountable minister of Christ Jesus to the nations, to serve as a priest of God's good news, the priest of the gospel, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. The offering that he's presenting to God is the nations. Acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, therefore I have a reason to boast in Christ Jesus. He does not say I have a reason to boast. He says I have a reason to boast in Christ Jesus. This goes all the way back to Romans 3.27 where the teacher who opposes Paul and whom Paul opposes says, well, where is boasting then? In your gospel, there's no room for boasting. And there isn't. But there is room for boasting in Christ Jesus, he says. I have a reason to boast in Christ Jesus, in things that pertain to God. And then I love this verse. In fact, it's one that I think every, every one of us should cherish as servants of Christ. And we all serve Christ in some way. And we all have some charisma, some spiritual gift to do so. In verse 18, for I do not dare to speak of anything except that which Christ has accomplished through me. Except that which Christ has accomplished through me. By word and action, 
Paul means by his preaching, his teaching, his exhortation, and his action, which included miraculous things, as we know, to bring about what? The obedience of the Gentiles, ethnon, nations, the obedience which is a participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ among the nations. In Romans 1.5, it says among all the nations or in all the nations, or it can even be translated by all the nations. There's kind of some room for interpretation in the little Greek preposition en, E-N, because there are at least 36 meanings to it, many of whom, many of which are determined by the context. So we can see how this passage reaches back to the beginning, how it reaches forward to the ending or the near ending of the book of Romans. Importantly then, Romans 10.21, in which God says to Israel through Isaiah, the third Isaiah, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. This anticipates the high point and the best moment of the whole section, which is Romans 9 through 11. And it's arguably the key verse of Romans, the epistle of Paul to the Romans in its totality. And that is 1132. Just look ahead to that. We're jumping back and forth here. It's kind of an oscillating way to teach, but oscillation, back and forth motion is one of the best ways to highlight the center of a thing, which is Christ in him crucified. 1132, for God has enclosed, the word is strong here, it means imprisoned as we've seen. God has enclosed the whole of humanity. Tus pantos, very strong word, the all, the all, the totality of human beings, Jews and Gentiles alike. Therefore, we have here the all, tus pantas, meaning the universally inclusive whole of humanity, all of humanity as a single monolith, as a, as a whole, as an entirety, as a totality. He has enclosed All, the all, in the prison of their own disobedience. And he uses the same word he used right in Romans 10.21. All day long I've extended my hands to a disobedient people. But here he says, God has enclosed, imprisoned, closed up, shut up all humanity, Jews and Gentiles alike, in their own prison of disobedience. And oh, how many people would love to conclude from that so that he may punish them all, so that he can drop his wrath on all of them. But here, and blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, it says, so that he may have mercy on them all, so that he might have mercy. On them all. According to his mercy, he saves. To have mercy on someone is to save that person. So here we have the mathematics of Romans 11, in which he's talking about all, and we'll see this forming together. We'll see this coming together very artfully pretty soon within the next few messages. He talks about the fullness of the Gentiles entering or coming in and we know the interpretation for that coming in is found in revelation of all places revelation 21 26 which speaks of the nations and their kings and all their glory entering in to the new jerusalem which is a metaphor for the entirety of the new creation it's a metaphor for the israel of god when all of the nations play roma that's the totality of gentiles comes in, then all of Israel, pass, that's Romans eleven twenty-five, play Roma, the totality of the Gentiles, plus pass, P-A-S, which is all Israel. So all Israel will be saved. 
all the totality, without any exception, the totality of the nations enters the New Jerusalem or salvation. And so then all Israel will be saved. If you put Pleroma plus Pas together, you've got biblical math. Pleroma plus Pas, the totality of the Gentiles plus all of Israel equals all humanity, the entire human race, which goes back again to Romans five twelve to 21. By the disobedience of the one man, Adam, all were constituted sinners and condemned. And by the obedience of the second Adam, Christ, all were justified and given life. All were rectified, set right, and given life. Something struck me today, very like a locomotive, to use the Superman introduction. That in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul talks about certain Jewish people. He wasn't talking about Jews. He was talking about enemies that happened to be of the Jewish faith or Judaism. And those enemies were the leaders of Jerusalem that put Jesus to death, that killed the prophets. He said it was a certain kind of people who killed the prophets. They killed our Lord Jesus And now they're after me, Paul said. And you're going to see this echoed tonight. But he said, upon whom the wrath of God has come to the uttermost. Now, once I said that's the adumbration of A.D. 70, but I think now it's the picture of A.D. 30. Because he says the wrath of God has already come upon these men to the maximum. When? At the cross. At the cross. The wrath of God has come upon these enemies, even those who murdered Jesus Christ, even those that murdered the prophets, even those that sought to murder Paul. The wrath of God has already come upon them to the uttermost at the cross when it was endured by the sinless Christ. Just something to think about. Is that true? Quidset, is it true? Onset, is it? Is it so? Go ahead and answer it. Do your homework. So God says, I've extended my hands out to a disobedient people, but then he later says, I've shut up everybody in disobedience, not just my people Israel, but all the nations and all the pagans, all humanity, in order that I might have mercy upon all. Jonah is really mad because God doesn't judge the pagans at Nineveh. He has mercy on them. Elijah is mad because he said they have murdered your prophets, overturned your altars, and now they have a hit out on me. And I alone am left. I'm a one-man remnant. So can't you do like you did with Moses and go to Moses and say, let's wipe these people out and start all fresh, just you and me, which God did to Moses in a humorous way. And Moses said, well, then blot me out first. That was, he forgot that answer, but that's coming up. So importantly, Romans 10.21 anticipates, it looks forward to the high point and best moment of this whole section And arguably, I think, the key verse in Romans, possibly, that being 11.32. So, for God has enclosed the whole of humanity. That's tus pantas. That includes the pleroma of the Gentiles, the totality of the nations, in Romans 11.25, and all pas Israel. Pleroma plus pas equals the whole human race. That's biblical math. It's mathematics. It's mathematical. It's factual. God has enclosed the whole of humanity in disobedience, in their own disobedience. Same word, only it's a little bit of a different word, a different form of the word, apitheo, so that he might have mercy on them all. So in Romans 11.25, the word enters or comes in 
when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, it's aiselthe in the Greek, the aristactive subjunctive of the verb aisercomai, which I'm not going to write up here, but maybe we'll get this in print. The uncertainty of the subjunctive mood of that word aisercomai relates to the undisclosed time of its occurrence, not of its occurrence per se. In other words, the, the certainty is that all the nations will enter in under the lordship of Christ, in the salvation work of Christ, under his salvation. The person of the verb is the third person singular. The totality, pleroma, of the nations is a single first or third person singular. So it's one whole monolithic thing as if it were one man. All the nations as one man entering in as one person. So it comprehends all the nations as a singular monolithic whole, just as pas in reference to Israel in 1126 is inclusive of a single totality, an entirety. The two together are the entirety of the human race. This is the truth that reproves the lie of elective exclusivist arrogance. I call it both elective exclusivist arrogance and elective elitist arrogance because elitist, E-L-I-T-I-S-T, is an attitude in which one regards himself or herself to be above the rest of humanity. And exclusivist emphasizes the view that others, other than me, other than one's own person, if not the majority or the hoi polloi, as they may call it, are kept eternally in outer darkness or will be consigned to eternal punishment in what people call hell. Now, Revelation 21, 24 to 27, especially when it says in 21, 26 of Revelation, ice outain or ace outain into it regards the pilgrimage of the kings and the nations through the always and forever open gates of the New Jerusalem. Her gates are never closed, never shut. They're never shut for anyone who comes to those gates. As Jesus said, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast them out. The gates are open day and night. And so the, the word for enter is interpreted... In Revelation 21, 26, they come into the New Jerusalem. Entering into the New Jerusalem by her always open gates is a metaphor for the entrance of the totality of the Gentiles into the salvation that comes from the Jews through their Messiah. Salvation comes from the Jews, Jesus said in John 4, 22. It comes through the Jews, through their Messiah, however, Christ, who according to the flesh came from Israel. And so entering the new Jerusalem by the always open gates is a metaphor for the entrance of the totality of the Gentiles into the salvation that comes from the Jews through their Messiah. And this embraces all of humanity and all of creation itself. All of humanity and all of creation. To this may be added the insight of Paul, quote, that the Gentiles are co-inheritors, members of the same body, and fellow beneficiaries and partakers of the promise. Partakers of the promise. Remember the promise was made to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed in your seed, and your seed is Christ. So he said, this is my insight, Paul said. The Gentiles, or pagans, are now co-heirs, members of the same body, and fellow beneficiaries, and partakers of the promise. Not a conditional contract, but an unconditional and universal promise made to Abraham and to his seed, that is Christ. The promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. They will have equal share in the inheritance with Israel through the gospel. The whole story is told in Ephesians 2, 
12 through 3.6, but especially 3.6 is in reference here. So Paul said, when you exegete my scriptures, my epistles, you will come up to my insight. You'll understand my understanding into the mystery of Christ, which ultimately, and I hope to bring this up Sunday again, is the recapitulation, the ingathering of all of creation, all of humanity, in all of its times in Christ, so that Christ comprises everything. That's the message. That is the heart of the message that I have as an individual preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who, like Elijah and like Jonah, and like Abraham, and like Moses, and like David, and like Samuel, and like all the prophets, am a sinner. You read, the New, you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you'll find that all spokesmen of God, with the exception of the Word himself, are sinful men. I always get a kick out of people getting a shock that somebody's a sinner. Which shows their own self-righteousness, of course. I could make a lot of social comments right now, but I don't even think this audience is able to bear it. Because it would challenge your love of the present evil age more than you want to be challenged right now. So I won't do it. And I'm not speaking to everybody. I'm just speaking to Pontus. Everybody. So in Romans 11.32, the noun apithea is used. The same word, only in a different form. It's a noun, apithea. It means unbelief, disbelief, disobedience, compared with the participle in Romans 10.21. The participle in Romans 10.21 is acts as an adjective, and it means disobedient and, and disbelieving. So this is especially important because in Romans 1.4, again, going back to Romans 1.4c, where it says, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received grace and the office and conferred powers of apostle. That's my expanded translation. Through whom we have received grace and the office and conferred powers of apostle to bring about the faithful obedience, that is, of Jesus Christ in all the nations. So it's crucial that we recognize here that all of humanity is imprisoned by God in their own disobedience and disbelief. In fact, if anyone is made obedience, it's only by a participation in Christ's obedience. And if anyone believes even, it's because the faith has been elicited by the power of the Spirit through the gospel. This message itself has the power to bring about something in our nation that has not been brought about yet. It's called a renewal, a revival of the word of God. And revival doesn't mean jumping jacks in the aisles and the overuse of tambourines. It means understanding and insight among the people of God who carry that out into a higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus, which attracts rather than scatters away from the faith. The reason for this, that God imprisoned all in their own disobedience, is because there is no hope of rectification or justification from the human side. There is no hope of being right with God from the human side. Forget about it. There's no hope. But I know good people. No, you don't. It's not good people and bad people. It's all people under the power, the alien power of sin and enslaved to it. Some just look better. Act nicer. Put them in the right situation, they'll kill you. The heart is deceitful and wicked beyond description. That's the heart of all humanity without the redemptive work of Christ, without the grace of God that's irresistible. 
again, all of humanity is imprisoned in its own disbelief because salvation is exclusively of the Lord. It's the Lord's doing from beginning to end. And I like what the psalmist said in Psalm 118, 23, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Once your eyes are opened, the salvation of the Lord is marvelous, not least because it includes everything. It includes everybody. It's an insight that you can't browbeat people into accepting. It's just not going to happen that way. It's an insight and an illumination. And that's why I pray that the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened, that we might see this insight and to see the vision of our Lord Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. And so... Salvation is of the Lord. That means there's no hope of it from the human side. It's a divine activity. It's a divine action in Christ accomplished at the cross. So salvation is exclusively of the Lord and it's the Lord's doing and it is amazing, says the scripture. It is amazing in our eyes. There's a word amazing that is overused to the point of nausea today. So-and-so is amazing. They are amazing. You are amazing. I am amazing. We're all amazing. Yes, we're all amazingly arrogant and ignorant of this truth is what we're amazingly. So this is the one time where the word amazed is and amazing is used. And that's Psalm 118, 23, repeated and echoed into Matthew 21, 42 and Mark 12, 11. It is amazing in our eyes. What is? The divine act of deliverance of God in Christ for man who's hopeless and helpless to be able to engineer his own rectification and justification. That's what's amazing. Also amazing is because of its inclusivity of all humanity and all created reality in all of its times. I have seen salvation in all creation in all of its times. And by seen it, I mean I have conceived of it in my mind. I have seen it in my mind's eye. It is a vision. Without this vision, the people of God or the church of Jesus Christ won't even be the church anymore. It won't even have the right to be called the church. No pastor has the right to tell a president that the president has the right to kill a leader or to bomb a people. That's not. That's a sign of apostasy in churches and a sign of apostasy among the clergy. The further you get outside the camp, the more you see how odious the camp was. The campfire there even stinks. Anselm, a writer that's maligned, and I'm starting to pay attention to writers that are maligned because usually they're the ones that you want to listen to because the people that are maligning them are the people inside the camp who would rather wave a flag than the banner of the cross. In the book, Curd Deus Homo, Why the God-Man, Anselm, in chapter 2.4, said this, no sinner can effect expiation of sin for himself. That's why salvation is of the Lord. Expiation for sin was accomplished in the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Once in the end of the ages, Christ appeared for the putting away of sin by the offering of himself. It's amazing to me. It is marvelous in our eyes. Why is it marvelous in our eyes? Because our eyes have been enlightened, that's why. Our eyes have been enlightened to see this. The result is amazement. The result is wonder. Now we're ready for Romans 11.1. 1. You say, wow. Romans 11.1, 1, Paul says, I ask in return. Now, I've held out my hands all day to a disobedient and defiant people. So Paul says, I ask in return. God has not rejected his people. He uses the same word for people, laon, as in 1021. Has he? 
That's a rhetorical question that demands a negative answer. Paul engages in rhetoric, a rhetorical thing, not negative rhetoric, but a, the science of rhetoric and dialectic here. He's brilliant at it. So if you're going to interpret that, I have extended my hands all day to a disobedient people, then most people will say, well, I don't blame you if you thump them then. You should reject them then. So God has not rejected his people, has he? To which I also reply, most certainly not. The strongest negation there is in the scripture is meganoito, and Paul uses it right here. And he's judicious with his use of it. He only says it 13 times in all of his epistles. But when he says it, he means hell no. Most certainly not. For I myself am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. And he could say, I myself, there was no one more disobedient, no more disbelieving, no more defiant than I myself. But look at me now. I'm a new creation called into being by Christ. In Christ Jesus, I don't live myself, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. I'm an Israelite. If he'll do that for me, he probably is going to do it for everybody who is Israel. And he's made me, an Israelite, the carrier of the message to the pagans who, oddly enough, eschatologically, are all going to come in first and then all Israel will be saved. The last will be first. The first, Israel, will be last. The last, the Gentiles, will be first in. Those that didn't work all day, all through history, they didn't work in the fields all day. They came at the last hour, got the same wages. Go figure. I got no problem with that because I have no problem with the generosity of God's grace toward all human beings. If you got a problem with that, that's where your problem is, with God's generosity and beneficence toward all human beings. Well, some deserve damnation, damn it. Well, of course that's what you think. Because you love this present evil age, and you're more like Demas than Paul, who called this an evil age, and Demas fell in love with the present age. And so he left Paul, just like many people will leave Paul's teaching, because they love this age. And one of the best things about this age, and I mean that sarcastically, one of the most evil things about this age is the evil assumption that God should punish unto hell a big part of the population. But Paul's asking here. God speaking that way through Isaiah doesn't mean he's rejected his people, has he? I most certainly, I say most certainly not. For I myself am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the first tribe in when the Red Sea was split open. The first tribe to be saved by a divine act of God. So Paul's talking about his tribal membership here, not because he's proud of it naturally, he's kind of that, but done. But he's talking about his Israelitish history and that he's saved. So verse 2 says, God has not rejected his people. Now he's saying explicitly and outright. He's not asking a question. He's saying outright. God has not rejected his people whom he chose beforehand. That means in history, before in history, previously in history. Or are you not aware? He seems to be talking to that teacher again. Or are you not aware? Don't you know? Don't you know? What the scripture says in the narrative about Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel. There, Who? Elijah the prophet pleads with God against Israel. And he's got a good case. They kill your prophets. They overturn your altars. They blaspheme. They're defiant. They're disbelieving. They don't believe. And you know what's worst of all? They have a contract out on me. Me. Jezebel is chasing me down. 
So it's worth noting that a prophet of God pled with God against Israel. By Paul saying that, he's saying maybe you, teacher, whom he is opposing in Romans, maybe you're taking the side of Elijah and you think God ought to destroy his people. Especially, especially because they murdered your son. Good case. It's a good case, but you don't know God. So it's worth noting that a prophet of God, a prophet of God, pled with God against Israel, even as another prophet of God, Jonah, pled against the pagan residents of Nineveh. After God spared him, in both cases, God answered with mercy. Mercy toward Israel, in Elijah's case. Mercy toward the pagans in Nineveh, in Jonah's case. Mercy, which he determines to have upon all. Our objections today from preachers, pastors, evangelists is that God, you should not let your mercy triumph over judgment for everybody. I just won't feel right unless you send a few million to an eternal blast furnace to scream forever in horror and pain. I just won't be happy. Think about the logic of that. Because if you show mercy upon all, it means I'm not special. And I can't handle that. What a terrible realization. It's the first thing you should tell your kid when they understand the language of English. You're not special. You're not special. Really? You tell them that from the beginning, they won't be shocked to find it out in the fourth grade when a peer says, you're not special. If they learn right, they go and somebody says, you're not special. And they say, I know. But I'm a candidate for the grace of God. And so, of course, there is, on the other hand, obviously God considers each person special. But you're not so special that you can say, no, mommy, I'm going across the street even though those cars are traveling at a clip of about 60 miles an hour. I'm too important to obey you. I'm important. The parent should say, you're not so important as to defy my order. Because if, and if they're old enough to handle this, if you cross the street now, you'll be splattered all over the sidewalk or all over the asphalt. I'm, I'm doing all that. I'm going to an extreme to make a point. And that's what Elijah had to learn this. In both cases, God answered with mercy toward people. First toward Israel, in Elijah's case, then toward Nineveh, which represents all the nations, in Jonah's case. Elijah's case in Jonah's case adds up to the Jews and Gentiles getting mercy. And Jews and Gentiles equals everybody. So listen, God's spokesmen or spokeswomen or those who claim to speak for God have a grievance with God's universal mercy. It doesn't mean they're not God's spokesmen. These guys were God's spokesmen. It doesn't mean we despise them and say they're heretics and apostates and we should never fellowship with them. These are men of God. These are prophets who speak for God who objected to his mercy. It's natural. In fact, we could say it's Adamic. It's the Adamic ontology that still works. If you read the Bible, you you would know that it should be rated at least R, maybe M-A, because it catalogs the failures of people, most of whom were people of God. Egregious failures. This mercy triumphs over judgment because of what 
Jesus accomplished by his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. I told you, if you keep oscillating, it only draws attention to the center. So Romans 11, 3, for those of you that wanted a Romans 11 study, here we have it. Lord, they have murdered your prophets. This is the lament of Elijah on the run. Remember under the juniper tree, he said, kill me. Take me home. I said that once to God. I said, kill me. And he said, I already have. Like Clint Eastwood said to the hippie filmmaker, thinking about making my own Deadpool and putting you on it. (laughs) Well, God has the Deadpool. He put us all on it. In Adam, all die. But in Christ, all will be made alive. So if you want to say that, take me home, Lord. Kill me. He'll say, I already did. You're crucified with Christ. Now start living. Like the window drop guy says, go live. Don't go out. Dogs go out. You go live. Yes, I've heard that. Because I watch baseball games, I have to be subjected to these commercials. And they played already today and lost. Uh, They have murdered your prophets. Hey, come on. You can't have mercy on this people. They killed. They murdered. They didn't just murder. They murdered your prophets. They killed them. They've torn down your altars, God, your sacred altars. They tore them down. How dare you have mercy on them? And I love this one. This is the epitome of elitist, exclusivist, elective, remnant thinking. I myself, alone, manos, alone. I myself alone am left remaining. There's no other faithful Israelite, just me. Little did Elijah know there's only one faithful Israelite, and his name is Jesus, not Elijah. It's as if Elijah is saying, I'm a one-man remnant, pivot, you might call it. I'm a one-man pivot. Like Moses, to whom you suggested, let's destroy all these people and start again with just you and me. God didn't say that because he intended to destroy Israel. He said that because he knew Moses would say, blot me out instead. And then he says, and they are seeking to kill me too. Paul echoes this whole thing in 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 to 16 when he talks about those who are persecuting the Thessalonians. You guys are getting persecuted by your own countrymen, he said. But we've got something in common because the churches in Israel are being persecuted by their own countrymen who have both killed the prophets, he says, just like Elijah. They have killed the prophets. And they have killed our Lord Jesus. And now they're after me. It's like he echoes this whole thing. And so when he says, and upon them the wrath of God has come, what do you think he means? He means that the wrath of God has come upon them in Christ Jesus. Already. And they're also going to be recipients of the mercy of God. You don't know Paul until you know what he means right there. So upon them, the wrath of God has come to the maximum. And I would add this interpretive note. Yeah, at the cross. A preacher recently replies and says, that's not A.D. 70. You know what? He's right. It's not A.D. 70. It's A.D. 30. The problem with us pastors is that we are distant from the cross. The problem, and it's easy. It's easy. It's the thing. The whole thing the world's designed to do is pull you away from the cross. The whole world is ordained for that, appointed to do that to you. 
That's why, for me at least, in my weakness, I have no recourse but to go to the word and go to the word and do it again like four times I did today for the rough sanding, for the fine sanding. The fine sanding of this message wasn't finished until 6.10. And then I didn't go by that even. So in closing, Paul is echoing something that were said by other prophets. Samuel was one prophet whom you don't see making a mistake, really. In fact, Samuel and Moses in Jeremiah 15 were placed in a similar category. But Samuel the prophet, speaking in his farewell address, read this on your own. 1 Samuel 12.1, he speaks a farewell address. He's going to die. He speaks a farewell address to all of Israel, all Israel, all Israel. You say, how can all Israel be present at that time? It wasn't. No, yes, it was. Just like when we have communion, all the body of Christ is present from all the ages, from all the generations in God's view. Speaking to all Israel in 1 Samuel 12, 1, in 1 Samuel 12, 22, he said, Yahweh will not reject the same word used by Paul because it's echoed in Paul. Apotheo, reject, desert, abandon, forsake, leave. And that's a man who's the, one of the greatest prophets that ever lived since Moses, Samuel. The one who anointed David in a secret anointing ceremony to be king and to be a forecast of the messianic king. In his last words, he said, Yahweh will not reject his people. He used the word laon, L-A-O-N, just like Romans 10.21 uses it, or abandon his own inheritance. He will not abandon his own inheritance because his own inheritance is you. It's the people that he knew, foreknew in history. Consider Psalm 94, 14, where this is echoed. Yahweh will not reject, the Lord is Yahweh, will not reject the Greek word in the Septuagint, which is 93, 14, apotheo, A-P-O, omega-O, T-H-E-O, omega-O. As in Romans 11, 1 and 2, both Romans 11, 1 and 2, apatheo. The Lord will not forsake his people, will he? No, he won't. The Lord will not forsake his people. Triple. That's why in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never, no, never, not ever leave you or forsake you. So if you've got a thing that you can say to God that you say, well, you would on this occasion, he would say, no, I won't. Well, you would if I did this. And he would say, no, I won't. I'll be with you. Maybe it'll be to discipline you. Maybe it'll be to chastise you because as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. But I will be with you and I will never leave you. And on top of that, in closing, listen to Romans eight twenty nine. As many as God foreknew. That's all that God foreknew. But he had just said in Romans 11, will God forsake his people whom he foreknew? In that case, it's all Israel. In this case, it's all. As many as God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he the son, would be the firstborn among many siblings. Many is ultimately all. He gave his life as a ransom for all. In Christ, all will be made alive. And verse 30, and those whom he predestines, he also calls. And that word calls doesn't just mean, hey, It doesn't just mean, hey, Will, 
Hey, Pauletta. It means he calls into existence as a new creation. As many as he foreknew, he calls into existence as a new creation. And those he calls into existence, and I'm using this as an interpretive point, as a new creation, he also justifies, rectifies, sets right. God's act is to set what's terribly wrong gloriously right. You say, how do you mean gloriously? Look at the next word. And as many as he rectifies, those he also glorifies. He sets gloriously right what has gone terribly wrong. God sets gloriously right those in Christ who went terribly wrong in Adam. It's the act of God in Christ. Salvation is of the Lord. And this is marvelous in our eyes, which is why Paul does the doxology in Romans eleven thirty three to 36. Oh, the depth of the wisdom, the saving wisdom of God. Who would ever know the mind of the Lord? Who, no one would ever think of the cross is what he's saying. No one would ever think of the cross. No one was ever his counselor. And observe that in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, Peter equates those who are foreknown with the elect. The elect are the foreknown. And you have to ask yourself the question, who is not foreknown? And therefore, who ultimately is not elect? And if Jesus Christ is the elect one with a view to the election of all, then who are the elect but all who are in Christ Jesus ultimately? And I use that word advisedly. All who are in Christ Jesus are the elect. And who are all who are in Christ Jesus? All. For in Adam, all the human race dies. In Christ all the human race will be made alive. Not alive to go into hell, like Augustine suggested. Made alive with Christ's own life, which is by its very definition a life that's already passed through every form of death and conquered it. Father, use this message to call forth your new creation to make things now that were not created before, to create situations in individuals' lives in this place that have not existed before. For that's what messages do. They create situations which were not in people's lives before. 